Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to We Dig Metal Evolution, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution documentary series, hosted by Nate Wilcox with Eugene S. Robinson of the art punk band Oxbow and entertainment lawyer Alexi Ald. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate, Eugene, and Alexi discuss shock rock, a made-up genre that Sam Dunn used to lump together Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson, Slipknot, and several other acts with a knack for theatrical antics. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're back again with Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussion of Sam Dunn's Metal Evolution series that aired on VH1 a few years back. The ninth episode kind of invents a subgenre he calls shock rock, which includes artists with a strong visual element to their stage shows. Guys, do we buy shock rock as a separate genre worthy of its own no. episode? No. 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 Alexi. I mean, but because, because of what. They had to keep stuff out to put stuff in. Yes. Yep. And they took really... It's funny, you can tell because the episodes in which he has to go way back and handle genres that really... Yes, they were influential, but a totally different music genre, you know? So it goes exactly what Eugene said. So it's what's kept out and then also how long they have to dwell on certain things. Yeah, yeah. I think the rationale for this was they wanted to cover Marilyn Manson pretty heavily. Like 10 years ago when this came out, Marilyn Manson was a bigger deal than he is now. Yep. 20 years, he was even bigger deal. And Manson doesn't quite fit in a category. Like I had thought he kind of fit in with industrial with like Nine Inch Nails or White Zombie or whatever. But going yeah. back and listening to the records, 
at least the first couple records are pretty much straight guitar rock and then it gets more industrial ish later same thing with white zombie white zombie actually started out as like a new york noise band it was interesting to go back to their up, records up, up, there, up, up there with live skull and who i always loved much better than uh, white zombie and i was shocked that actually i thought live skull had it all and they just you know and i had a friend in white zombie sean yourself so i was shocked that they actually made it so you also know well, it was a stretch, too, by the fact that he took so long visiting the Coney Island Freak Show. It's like, come on. It's, you don't have enough stuff well, to I investigate. Got, I, got, I, got, that. I got kind of nostalgic for that. That, oh. that, guy, that, that actually, man, look at that Coney Island. Well, that does bring us to the first segment of the episode, which is they go visit Donnie Vomit, keeper of a freak show in Coney Island. I don't know if we're allowed to say freak show anymore, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it. Um, and you know, they connect us to P.T. Barnum and this tradition of horror, shock, entertainment. And heavy metal really has, at least in our lifetimes, kind of taken that niche, you know, like circus performers aren't a big thing. You had the Jim Rose sideshow. What did they, the Jim Rose, whatever he called it, that toured with Lollapalooza and shot Homer Simpson in the stomach with a cannonball and everything. But that's like the last time freaks shows have had any kind of cultural relevant the only time in my lifetime they've had any kind of relevance so yeah i don't know i kind of saw and that that was a resurgence up there with burlesque and all that kind of stuff you know swing swing dancing and now they have the rest annoying stuff (laughs) the fourth star revival yeah speak i'm not a stripper i'm burlesque dancer (laughs) it's on a higher level yeah as soon as like they had pole dancing classes for housewives it was the dream was over you know oh easy easy that's bringing money into my household here easy (laughs) (laughs) that's funny instead of saying that's an art that should be respected it's bringing money into my (laughs) hey that i respect (laughs) that i respect but she's on the right side of the transaction you know it's like that's right that's right it's like the guys that i knew that were um you know cabela's the hunting supply yes yeah uh uh-huh their sons opened uh, one of the big rehearsal studios in Austin. So just oh. the, the entrepreneurial gene, these were the disowned heavy metal sons. And they were like, hey, we need a place to practice. I'm going to buy a warehouse and turn it into, you know, and then money just rolled right in. Like the, the, the Cabela family cannot stop printing money. Yeah. Um, but so she's on the right side of the transaction by teaching the class. See, that's no, no wrong with that. Um, anything else we want to say about Coney Island, the freak show tradition, other than that's not really relevant to the topic at hand? Oh, it was yeah, re- the, oh, okay. Well, I, yeah. No, go ahead. There was one. It was, it was one fantastic scene. Like where I said, I'm driven to distraction by the fact that Canadian TV apparently can't afford to get him to the shows. They somehow have to, have to impress us with how he gets to the shows. So we see him in planes. We see him walking walking. The, the thing, uh, they should actually have fun with it. He should ride a bicycle every now and then. But there's a great scene where they focus on Coney Island, where he's walking this way, and like the perfect, that fat, hairy yes. polar guy with the Adidas shorts is going that way. And it was just such a beautiful scene. I was like... Okay, <laughs> that made me miss uh, Brooklyn. I think that yeah, was the thing. Exactly. 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 <laughs> Uh, nothing like that in Montclair. Um, oh. And so, I mean, anything they missed with the Carney Island thing? Like, are y'all familiar with the Grand Guignol tradition in France where they had the Guignol. 19th century? Huh, say it right. Say it right. Guignol. No, I'll take it. I can't. I can't. You know, I've been trying all day. I listened to it on YouTube several times and 
But yeah. that was a cool like the, thing where they you the U I G N the U I G N Nul. Yeah. Grand Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that wasn't bad. But um, you know, so that was a big thing in nineteenth century France where they had the decadence and they had they had kind of cabaret music and, and these bloody horrific playlets. Um and uh, they could have mentioned that, but I don't know that I think Carney's is, is much more American and P. T. Barnum. P. T. Barnum, but, I mean But they dropped the fucking ball, right? Because the Carney tradition that was most directly connected to heavy metal was the geeks, right? And the geeks were the low people on the totem pole at the freak show that would just bite the heads off of animals. And that was super apropos given, you know, well, I, technically, Alice Cooper didn't bite the head off the chicken, but but Ozzy Osbourne did bite the head off a bat. So, accidentally, had, accidentally, <laughs> drunkenly, had to get a lot of rabies shots uh, there. Yeah. Then they bring it thought, into rock and roll. He thought it was rubber. He said, "I'm not sure." There's no telling what he was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and if you notice, they had Ozzy in the shock rock category on his little chart, which. They had yeah, the New York Dolls of, too, and didn't. You know. Yeah, they had the the dolls there hey, uh, instead did of. You, did, you, did you? I'm take, sorry. Take this a little bit off the side. Did you see that the woman from the cover of the Black Sabbath record is now a crazy anti-vaxer? No, the first Black Sabbath record. The, yeah, uh, which you see yeah. the woman in the background. That's yeah. that's fitting. Um, she look, but yeah. she looks amazingly. She looks amazingly good for somebody who's probably in her seventies. You know. Well, that's what probably the blood all that magic. Yeah. Exactly. Go. Exactly. Elizabeth Bathory swore by it. <laughs> right. Tub right. after tub. Uh, with tub after tub. <laughs> Cindy Lauper was on that list, wasn't she? <laughs> uh, she was might, on the. She, no, she was on the PMRC list when they did that segment. You're correct. With yeah, she was. Cindy yep, Lauper's on the list. Yeah. Craziness. Well, Shebop was, you know, talking about right. female self-pleasure, right. a very forbidden topic, um, one that mm. upset Mrs. Gore in particular. So then they take it into the roots of rock and roll, and they they flash all of us on the screen, but they zero in on Little Richard, um, which is fine. Uh, Little Richard was totally shocking, and 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 Lemmy, the number one Little Richard fan in the world, that gets to talk about <laughs> in his he Nazi was. regalia. <laughs> I know he would punch people though if they if they said something like something crazy like Jerry Lee Lewis was better than Little Richard or they like Chuck Berry yeah. better than Little Richard like Lemmy would would throw down and uh, also um, they dropped dropped the ball on this one because Little Richard he he had this antecedent and James Blood Omer talked about uh, talked about this it was this crazy performer who was back in the forties was bald this woman. And she would wear this, these kind of crazy wigs. And in the middle of the show, she'd be hooting and hollering. And then she would rip off the wig to reveal this bald head. And uh, she influenced, um, you know, she influenced Little Richard. I remember him talking about it as well. I'm trying to remember her name, like Crazy Zelda, some shit like that. It Was you was know, it the gospel so. guitar player whose name I'm now forgetting that I did a whole episode on? I don't know. No, we're, he we're both we're both old and unlikely to remember. Yes, and 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 didn't do our homework. I'm not throwing any fingers. I'm just saying. Um, but <laughs> Lemmy has a great quote with with Little Richard came from Macon, Georgia. Can you imagine being black and gay in Macon, Georgia in 1947, putting on a dress with a pencil mustache and a Marcel wig? Right? Jesus Christ! He, it's bad enough being gay there now. I imagine so. Uh, and Little Richard wasn't doing this shit just in the house. He talks no. about running. On the street, and just like, or just on the stage, he was like, "Hey, 
this is me. I'm out now, you know, running down the store, whatever. That's the way he wanted to roll. So. Yep. And, and, you know, uh, he, he pulled it off. Nobody killed little Richard. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think little Richard deserves the props. Definitely was shocking. And then they bring in Screaming Jay Hawkins, which is where it gets gothic. And I'm glad they gave him some shine. Screaming Jay is a really interesting character. Like, he only had the one hit song. It wasn't even a hit. It was a jukebox hit. Um, I put a spell on you. Sold tons of records on jukeboxes, but they didn't play it on the radio. Mm. Wasn't on the charts. He was pretty much totally underground. And, you know, the 50s was this weird period for horror where even the universal monsters from the thirties were kind of too scary for the fifties. Like they watered down horror movies. They had sci-fi horror movies like the creature from the black lagoon and stuff. But the, you know, the old school Frankenstein Dracula, the Wolfman stuff from the thirties and forties was still big in the fifties. So screaming Jay was able to just kind of recycle that stuff. Mm. And you know, his whole act of being in a coffin. Although the one thing they didn't bring up that I thought they should have with screaming Jay was, you know, he was a trained opera singer. And so even though his working background was in kind of like jump blues, played with a guy named Tiny Grimes, who was kind of straddling that line between jazz and R&B as the icebergs were drifting apart and Screaming Jay was his lead vocalist and then got drunk in the studio or got somebody got him drunk in the studio to do the Screaming, I, I Got a Spell on You and became Screaming Jay. And he just went with it for his whole career, um, such as it was. Too, too bad we don't know anybody who's actually written a book on Screaming Jay. Uh, not anybody like that. I've interviewed yeah. a guy who wrote a book on Screaming yeah, Jay. Yeah, yeah, you... yeah, 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 yeah. What, what, what book was that? Uh, it was Screaming Jay Hawkins, I think was the title of it. Steve Burke. Yeah, yeah. Was the... yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you read the foreword to that? I, I did, I did. Written by uh, somebody <laughs> very familiar. Uh, one of Eugene S. Robinson. <laughs> ah, there you go. Stop <laughs> <laughs> Put some put some respect on that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and then they get to the crazy world of Arthur Brown, who yeah. is right on the edge. He's musically, if 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 you go back, the record's not bad, but it's not heavy metal. It's not even heavy rock. Uh, it's real organ heavy. Um, but his live show was totally killer, and and you know had the fire dress on his head, the Inca headdress with the flames. And uh, put on a killer psychedelic live show, and I say he looks pretty good too. Yeah, it did ten years ago. I think he might have passed since then, but but yeah, he looks pretty good on the show, and uh, um, and I think I think deserves his props because he was out there at the same time as Hendrix and Cream and 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 all this stuff, and 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 Fire was a huge hit both sides of the Atlantic, and then his band quit on him after the U.S. tour, and and. You know, one of these people who, who has it, how does a one hit wonder happen? Ask Arthur Brown. You you run off your band and you take two years off, come back with a prog rock band and nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, but but he's more talented than than you might think, and the album's better than you might assume. It's not. I've definitely heard one hit wonders who couldn't fill out a whole album with entertaining stuff. And, and you mean it's did. not Lincoln Park, but. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, it never worked with Rick Rubin. So um, I'm telling you, you guys, the kids, the kids are laughing at you for your disrespect of Lincoln Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the, all the kids, you know, <laughs> my kids don't even know Tupac and Nirvana. I'm like, you know, Nirvana, what? 
like yeah, yeah they're like oh says, that's a shirt that's like hot topic shirt right it's yeah like, the, the thing, tupac the Wu-Tang Clan and nirvana are that's, just t-shirts that, yeah. that people wear in some context so and, and then i said like the ramones they said no nobody even wears ramones shirts anymore so yeah um, what are you gonna do yeah but now we come to alice cooper and i don't know about y'all but when i was a little kid in the 70s the rumors about alice cooper yep. were endless and the yokels in my hometown were terrified of Alice Cooper. And also the whole uh, gender thing was a big part of, mm. in their imagination. The, you know, the Alice Cooper was a witch and he's a dude, but he's named Alice Cooper and you know, all this stuff. He's the reincarnated spirit of this dead witch. And there was always a problem with the fact that originally Alice Cooper was a band and he was Vincent, the lead singer. And then they, the identities just got conflated and the money people figured out, hey, we can just fire the band and make this guy Alice Cooper and, you know, the rest. Were of they history. art school Although, students too? Like that's the thing I had heard for a while was the fact that they were like kind of art school guys. I don't believe so. I thought they were more like well, rockers. Come on, come on. Go on ahead and keep but, on talking. But yeah, look at <laughs> up. I actually, I don't know. Um, I don't know that one. I mean, I know that. Vincent Fournier, I think is his name, that we now know as Alice Cooper, was from Detroit. But the band, I think, actually got going in Arizona and Central California, were sort of affiliated with Frank Zappa, and did hard rock. And they're, I mean, you know, for people that are into late 60s hard rock, I think they're pretty well respected. Um, But their stage show was what got them where they got. And they played in detroit a lot with mc5 and 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 iggy and everything else but their show was much more theatrical and controlled than those guys even though it was much more notorious because of the guillotine and the infamous chicken thing at the festival where or somehow a chicken ends up on stage alice throws it in the crowd doesn't know chickens can't fly yeah. and and the the kids in the wheelchairs in the front rows rip the chickens to pieces i like that part um you know but I, the the thing it's interesting to me in retrospect, Alice Cooper because he had a couple of radio hits and ends up on the Muppet Show. I remember has, that. Yeah, and he played golf with like Glenn Campbell. Him and Glenn Campbell were lifelong golfing buddies until Glenn Campbell's passing. He played golf Glenn with Campbell. Groucho Marx. Yeah. What about you know? And, and he becomes this total showbiz guy, whereas Iggy and MC Five crash and burn. The thing I, I want to know is like if you were there at the time, did you see Alice Cooper in the same vein as MC5 and, and Iggy and the Stooges? If you were seeing them in, in the Grandi Ballroom, did it all seem of a piece or did Alice Cooper even then seem more showbiz? Um, like why didn't he get tainted with the punk rock thing? Was it just because punk I, – I mean that's kind of my big question. Is like the MC5 flamed out because of politics – and heroin, Iggy flamed out because of heroin and heroin. If they'd had their shit together, would they have been bigger? Or was punk just not? I I, I think that, no, I think that I, I, he looks so much to me like Steve Bader's. <laughs> if you actually Alice? think about it. Yeah, yeah. He he had the same sort of Steve Bader's vibe and they were from sort of the same part of the country that it was just kind of like, why would I listen to Alice Cooper when I could listen to Steve Bader's, the Dead Boys? And Steve Bader's was doing stuff like, you know, they said the only thing that you do is shocking is commit suicide on stage. I've seen the Dead Boys. I've seen Steve Bader's almost kill himself twice. Not once, 
but twice. So I have to assume this is part of the act. He throws the mic over the rafters, wraps it around his neck, goes, you know, goes limp. Some stagehand has to run out and get him. I know a little bit something about people getting choked into unconsciousness, and he really went to, you know, Valhalla for a second, you know, they un- unlash him. This is a standard part of his show, and they look so much alike. I don't know, you know. I, I mean, there's, like- there's an there's an air of ham theatricality of Alice that mm, anybody paying yeah. attention in, in the 70s got immediately, you know. I mean, maybe in, 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 in you know, Borgia, Texas, people were actually afraid, but uh, nah, nobody, uh, you know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm the rockers, the rockers weren't afraid. And I can remember my brother and his friends when Welcome to My Nightmare, the first Alice Cooper solo album without the band came out. And it was one of those, you know, gather around the stereo with the new record and, and the thumbs were all down and, you know, they didn't even make it to the record. I can, I can recall mm-hmm. I was given the record before the, the listening party was over. It was oh. in my collection. So, yeah. <laughs> but I think Alice people, Cooper was also well, five, it, seven years before the Dead Boys. I mean, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. Consumer, people, people, people were much more scared of Venom, which they get into later on in the thing. I mean, I remember but, before before Venom toured with Black Flag, people were actually like having like like were scared to like listen to the record alone and there was like a lot of weirdness them and, and christian and, uh, christian death from la which was not a heavy metal band at all but had the same sort gotcha. of like yeah keep creepy thing that people were like this is heavy shit so yeah the, i mean the 80s were a big time for satanic panic but the 70s were too and and i mean mm-hmm. even the beatles had a weird vibe in the 70s you know when i was a little kid and i got I thought Patty Hearst had been kidnapped by Mr. and Mrs. Manson and they had her in, his, in the closet. Like when I heard the Manson family, I thought it was like mom and pa kettle, except their name was Manson and they had kidnapped this Patty Hearst figure. Right. And, and the rumors I was hearing about the Beatles, you know, like somebody died in the band and their secret messages on an album cover. And if you peel that album cover off, they're naked underneath and, and, you know, and, and they, they're devil worshippers and they started a cult in Los Angeles and people were murdered and there's secret messages on the records. And if you play them backwards, it says, you know, kill Jesus and, and all this stuff. And there was definitely this heavy vibe around the Beatles. And later on, you know, I discovered, oh, there was a record that they had to recall and put a different cover on and somebody did die. You know, he was a bass player that was not in the band. You know, he was in the and band. Maybe they were satanic. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I mean, Yoko Ono was way into the occult, and 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 they did well, put also, secret messages in their records. And I and Robert Plant, I remember people postulating that Robert Plant's the death of his kids was it was a satanic sacrifice. I remember that. Yep. <laughs> and Why Jimmy anyone... Page was definitely into Aleister Crowley mm, in a big way. Yeah. I mean, he bought houses Aleister Crowley had lived in. He bought. Yeah manuscripts Alistair Crowley had handwritten. He bought robes that Alice Crowley had done rituals in. So, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is what it is, but that brings us to the next big fish, which they kind of skipped over. And I talked about a little bit in the American hard rock episode with Daryl Smith, but they have to go back for more kiss in this category. And as somebody who was eight in 1977, for my generation, you can't overstate the importance of Kiss. I mean, we had the lunch boxes, we wore the makeup, we all listened to all the records. Like, I can't even evaluate like is Kiss's music any good because I know every song by heart. So of course it sounds good, you know. Like, like it, there's no, it's that's what music is. It's Kiss, you know. And, and you want to shout it out loud? 
I do party all <laughs> night, you know, and they, they do get to the, the, the kind of the conflict though, that they had the makeup, they had the stage act, but then their material is just standard issue. It could have been black Oak, Arkansas or 38 special or any seventies band could have been doing those songs. Like they had no, um, they weren't creating any kind of mythos or whatever with their, their lyrics and stuff, except for the mythos that every woman wants to sleep with Gene Simmons. And, you know, like some of that stuff is extremely cringe. Were you too old and too cool for Kiss, Eugene? Or- no, no, I wasn't a kid. I, I think I was 14 when Destroyer came out. So I was 14 in 76. And, um, and I, I liked it. I liked it. I was, you know, that I sort of, they lost me a little bit with Beth. (laughs) You know, they they lost a lot of people with Beth, but I played that for my mom. I can remember like, you know, mom, look, see, see, they're actually talented. Look, and we should should have seen that coming. I mean, when the song was called Beth, it was very different vibe than God of Thunder. Right. (laughs) It was on that same album, you know? Yeah. And and my older brother was into the first three albums and then i got him kiss alive for his birthday and he's made a big ceremony of i have all these songs i'm taking it back to the store which he lived to humiliate me at christmas and birthdays like any anytime i bought him a record he and, <laughs> and then he went, when destroyer came out it was too popular and too many little kids were into it so yeah you know, so I had to bug him to borrow the record from a friend. Then I didn't get to listen to it till bedtime, and I fell asleep before the intro to Detroit Rock City was over. But you know, because it's got the guy starting his car and the whole, you know, uh, same thing happened to me when I begged him to borrow the White Album from a friend. You know, like I was all ready to hear Satanic Messages because I've been reading Helter Skelter and everything, and I don't think I made it through back in the USSR before I. I fell asleep and then what, he had to return was, the record. So. What was the first, what was the first Beatles record you owned? That I owned? Well, my elder sister had the blue one and the red one, you know, mm. and then I got, my, I got rubber sold as a gift in 1970. I believe. Huh? Well, what was your reaction to that? I enjoyed it. I, I weirdly enough, my favorite songs on it were George Harrison songs. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I would have thought the rubber soul would have been pretty out of fashion in 1970, but still a good record not not in Cobble hill brooklyn (laughs) yeah because because my older brothers tended to have the ones with mustaches and beards on the covers and (laughs) i don't know whose they were my sisters or my brothers and none of my brothers were really they were all too young for the beatles you know like there were that generation of kids that their mom dragged them to beatles parties or whatever and they didn't think the beatles were cool and and yeah 70s not digging my sister though was like the Beatles were right up there with Brett and Jim Croce and, you know, the uh, Queen. She she was also my, my so, entree. Are you the younger? Are you the youngest? Oh, yeah, by 10 years. I'm 10 wow. years younger than everybody else. So, uh, yeah, that so. explains so much. It does. <laughs> it does, yes. <laughs> when well, you're announcing, I, I am the oldest. Of course, as, as we can tell. Well, Alexi, though, what's your kiss? Where were you? How old were you? When uh, I w- it was an elementary school. I do remember when the uh, what the Phantom of the Park came out. Was that the one? Yeah. And then like yep. you see that's like wow, like everybody wanted to you know to play pretended. You went from pretending to Star Wars, pretending you were like Kiss. Like which member of Kiss were you, and all this kind of stuff. And which one were you? Uh I think because my name was Alexi, I had to be Ace. You know, I was really. always nice. I like nice. And know. so, uh, but that didn't last that long, though. But I didn't get any of it. And oh, and um, my cousin 
her father, her parents got divorced and her father would just show up on the playground and said, Alexi, when you see her, give her this. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, like, <laughs> I was like, here you go. And it was like kiss dolls, right? But I wanted them, but like he was buying kiss dolls for her. And I was like, here you go. Your dad came. And it's like, he shouldn't be around. You know, it's like one of these things where he had no custody and wasn't supposed to be around. And, you know, so uh, he'd give I'm her the kiss dolls. The kiss you know, dolls. Like, like, here you go. And she wouldn't want it. She's like, oh, okay. Oh, man. That's, like, that's a heartbreaker. <sighs> heartbreaker. Yeah. I mean, kiss was, was, all my friends were more into Kiss than I was. I liked Queen better, actually, and 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 I kept not getting the right Kiss records. Like my friend down the street had all the Kiss records, <laughs> Jeez, so man. like I was so excited that I got double platinum, and I ran down the street with it. Yeah, new! I got the new Kiss record. Oh, like, no. I have all these songs. Exact same thing my big brother did. I have all these songs. Like you know, and just like crushed me. But that double was like- platinum was a pretty good record. I mean. That was like me in baseball cards. People would always say, you know, Bucky Dent's a great player. And so I traded, you know, give me the Bucky Dent because he was he was crappy in the late you 60s. You traded away Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson for Bucky yeah. Dent. And then, of course, Bucky Dent got good. But yeah. I'd already figured out I had been snookered and threw it all in my baseball cards. Oh, so oh, yeah. oh yeah. painful, painful, painful stuff. Yeah. So... But Kiss's big downfall, and they get into it with the lunchboxes and how their audience changed from cool guys to teenagers to little kids, which is yeah. pretty hard to carry. Like by the time your audience is eight-year-olds, that's kind of going to put off other audiences. But they didn't get into the fact that they put out four really crappy solo albums at the same time, which they went from being the biggest band in the world to every remainder bin in the country was full of those kiss solo records forever i mean you could find those things used for 15 years and so then you know when they tried to recover by going disco i mean they had a they had a hit single but they never recovered the momentum from those solo albums and those solo albums oh my god the ace fraley one's okay but like the gene simmons one it's like Gene trying to prove he's an all-around entertainer. And oh. It's, it's yeah. yeah, it's atrocious. <laughs> and Peter Chris's album is what you would expect from the guy who yeah. sang Beth. So you know, yeah, yeah it's man. yeah. So they they they, I mean, they worked hard. They earned it. They had a great gimmick. It was perfect for. It was catnip for little kids. They from Brooklyn, it for or anywhere, and Borger. As well, although it's BC also. No, no, no. Yeah? the band band was from from Brooklyn. Ah, uh, the band was from Brooklyn. Yeah. Some yeah. of them were, but they were put together in Manhattan. You know, I mean, uh, I can't take it away. Gene Simmons, <laughs> Brooklyn, Brooklyn. <laughs> trying to claim him for Long Island. I know, I know, you love your home island, <laughs> but uh, jeez. <laughs> He's a bridge and tunnel guy. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Surprised you're not talking to Twisted Sister, who could have had a slot on this episode and didn't. Yeah. But when we come back, we'll take it into the 80s with Venom and Merciful Fate, kind of underground for this series, and then into the 90s with Marilyn Manson, and into the 2000s with Ramstein, which is kind of an interesting choice. Oh, so, slip, Slipknot. And I forgot Slipknot, who could have easily been on the new metal episode, but we're not. So we'll talk about that when we continue.
Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now, a word from our sponsors. And we're back to continue our discussion of shock rock and carry it into the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So when we left off, Kiss and Alice Cooper had pretty much wrung the washcloth dry on shock rock in the 70s. Would shock rock recover and find new angles in the 80s? Rest assured, thanks to Venom and Merciful Fate featuring vocalist King Diamond, they did, and the new angle was satanism not <gasps> hinting at it not wearing crosses like black sabbath did but just out and out upside down crosses pentagrams devil faces the whole bit corpse and, paint well uh, corpse paint king's diamond king diamond did corpse paint but uh six- venom no corpse paint yeah. he, had, he had the 666 and the little teardrop thing on his foot you know the whole <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Sam Don was frightened, a young Sam Don 
was Ooh. frightened by both Venom and Merciful Fate. And I have to I have to cut him some slack because in the eighties, I don't know about y'all, but where I came from, we believed a lot of silly rumors that came down the pike. I mean, you know, well, the- Venom. Venom had that, you know, had that thing until they toured with Black Flag. And Henry, I remember, came back and was like, those guys are about as scary as a Vincent Price movie. And that was the end. That was the end of that. They they were shocked at Black Flag's, you know, I mean, that was the tour. Black Flag was fist fighting with skinheads. And it was just a lot of real world chaos that the, you know, fairly older guys in Venom were not ready for it. But they were theoretically scary. Yeah, the they're album saying, covers were scary. They used incantations and uh, sacrificing animals, not live thuggery and buggery, <laughs> if you will. That's right, civilized Satanism. <laughs> and 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 musically, they were like real Motorhead ripoffs. I mean, they they didn't they were not one of your more technically advanced new wave of British heavy metal type bands. But yeah. the album covers were great. The the black metal album. Uh, and the lyrics, and, you know, yeah, the lyrics, yeah, lyrics were quite I mean, they, solid. They, they successfully created a kind of mystique um, around around their whole shtick that was actually fairly affecting. You know, like I remember listening to that uh, first Venom record, and I, it actually felt like you were doing. This. It was like same you know, like Christian death. Like you felt like like, like this is some, this is some shit. You know, this is like something. You know, I mean, they, those are the days where people were putting satanic chants on, like uh, uh, Iggy has that song with a hey, hoorah, where they do all these supposedly satanic chants. That was a little heavy, heavy back then, you know. Yeah, early 80s, you know, we weren't quite ready for, well, I guess we were totally primed and ready for this kind of Satanism because yeah. Kiss had had the whole Knights in Satan service rumor and stuff, yeah. but like, like the, the, the guy from man- Cradle of. Filth points out. You, you heard know, nights. I remember when I was a kid, it was called kids in Saints. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. I mean, come on. It was nice. Yeah, and I, I heard kids too. So you heard kids. That must have been yeah. the East Coast in Texas. Well, yeah. In the nights. East Coast, you had Ricky Castle, who, if you remember, uh, stabbed a friend to death in the woods out on Long Island and said, mm. you know, it, presumably said to him right before he stabbed him to death, uh, the drug deal gone awry, Say You Love Satan, which became the name of a, a biography about Ricky Castle, who then later hanged himself in a jail cell. But he became kind of like guys like Nick Zed, the uh, dearly departed Nick Zed. I think he actually did a film uh, with supposed uh, Ricky Castle character. And, you know, you got to remember Sonic Youth, who we know later for this kind of you know, coffee shop cool. Their first big hit, as far as I knew, was Death Valley '69, where they filmed "Running Around the Hills" with the Manson family, where it was a whole, you know, alternative as, serial killer as alternative icon uh, type era. Yeah, and that was more on the punk side. Though, I think you're right that the Venom was more theatrical, and Vincent Price is a good comparison point. And then King Diamond and Merciful Fate, um, they were they were. Danish for one thing. So that the musically they were more like in that power metal scorpions except kind of vein. Um I, I, I dug them at the time. I mean the vocals were ridiculous, but it was clearly novel and and um I mean it was unmistakable. You put a merciful fate tape on, you knew it was merciful fate. I mean King Diamond definitely had a unique branding. But again, pretty minor figures like 
I think you could make a run at Motley Crue being the biggest shock rock act of the mm. 80s on the metal scene. I mean, you know, setting what? his pants on fire and, and, and they, you know, they had shot at the devil and the whole, I remember the beginning of the second album, you know, ooh, and, you know, I had the whole sort of satanic thing. And I know the preachers in my hometown were more, much more upset about Motley Crue than Venom or Merciful Fate. I mean, I think I was the only kid in my town that knew who Venom was for a long time. I mean, until I told my friends, but you know, you everybody know, we, knew who Molly Crew was. We played with King Diamond, and that was one of the most flipped out uh, shows that Oxbow has ever ever played. And we used to have a, a what year? A was that? Oh, Tom Dobroff was in, so it had to be before Oxbow Serenade in Red, so maybe two thousand and two. Um, okay, so way late. Yeah, and it uh, it devolved into the police being called and the riot squad and all that stuff, uh, not because of King Diamond, <laughs> I, uh, uh, but it was a weird juxtaposition. Like we played, and then King Diamond, and they were sort of instrumental in the riot kicking off, um, and because uh, they they made the made the promoter cut our sound, so I flipped out and pulled the PA stacks into the crowd and beat up the bouncers and. Of course, I was naked when I did all this. So, you know, and after the police came and, dra and dragged and dragged me out, of course, then King Diamond comes on stage and they put this like model, naked girl model passed out over this kind of altar and these little scary candles. And people were like, what about the crazy Negro they just took out? <laughs> that shit was scary. This this is not scary, you know? So uh, <laughs> it was a weird juxtaposition, but... I do have to say that the guy Tom, Tom, who's that guy from Merciful Faith? The guy Tom, or no, uh, Celtic Cross. He was Celtic a great Cross. Guy. Yeah, Tom. Yeah. What's his letter? Were they on the same bill? Uh, no, no, but we played with him in Switzerland, and he was a really phenomenal guy. So I don't want to make it out like I'm a satanic hater. It's just that I didn't get along with King Diamond and his crew. Fuck them. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I, I, I mean, had to drag us into personal data, but well, we know. I mean, you know, it's. I always bring up the story of the guy, the real life grave digger, who was in a production of Hamlet with Laurence Olivier, and somebody asked him, "What's the play about?" He said, "It's about a grave digger who meets a prince." That's every Eugene story. It's 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 a what's what's the show about? Oh, it's about some bands that play with Oxbow. Is uh, yeah, exactly, exactly, right. Yeah. yeah. No, but I have to say, I have to say, but from the interview with him, I liked him more than I thought I ever would. And it's mm. too bad that things ended up in, that evening the way they did. He seemed like a pretty nice guy. Well, you know, for an avowed Satanist. And I also thought it was amusing that, that Sam Dunn was sort of, when he, when he, he was amused that King Diamond was living in a Dallas suburb. And he's like, there's nothing satanic about that. It's like, I was thinking, obviously you've spent less time in Dallas suburbs than I have because there's a lot that shit is Satan yeah. country. I just got to say. Go, let's go back to 1963, bro. Hey, you know, there's that. But Dallas is a lot like sort of a junior LA. And you yeah. see a lot of those like old Hollywood weirdo types in Dallas yep. sometimes, if you know if you know where to look. And a lot of yeah. creepiness. But this whole bit with this avowed Satanism is Anton LaVey's brand of Satanism, which is essentially Ayn Rand's brand of you know selfishness do what you want what makes you happy and and grab and take and and everything and don't worry about anybody else less than some kind of truly occult belief in supernatural forces or anything like that or the old school you know catholic 
kind of Satanism. Um, but it definitely freaked people out in the 80s. And that brings us to the PMRC, the Parents mm -hmm. Musical Resource, Resource Center. Music yeah. Resource Center. Yeah. Tipper Gore and um, who was the other big wife? So that's, that's the wife of Al Gore, who was a senator at the time. I think it was, I want to say Sam Nunn's wife. It was a Republican senator, that mm -hmm. senator's wife. That was the thing. But basically, they paint the PMRC as creating their own backlash or inadvertently giving bands yeah. like King Diamond a big break by putting them in the, the Filthy 15. And it's totally true. Like You had all these bands like Prince and Madonna and Motley Crue that were like you know chart-topping platinum acts. And then you had venom and king diamond and the mentors remember the mentors had a big their their entire run of fame was thanks to the pmrc i mean you know it's a sandwich one below <laughs> and one above sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes yes and the infamous but, line but, but, but oh you mentioned the mentors and i'm sort of shocked that they didn't mention gg allen and i know what mm, you're gonna yep. say Gigi Allen was more punk, but I remember when I had a magazine in the old days and got the first demo tapes from Gigi Allen, they were heavily rock influenced. He was a metal guy. It just happened to be that the punks liked him more, right? I, I would say he was more of a hard rock guy than a metal guy, though. Okay. I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah. The stuff that, you know. that he, his brother Merle sent me, I mean, we're talking 81 at that point. It, to my ear at this point, it was it was just shitty metal, uh, but I could also see just shitty rock. I thought it was garbage and threw it away. Yeah. Uh, the thing on Gigi, uh, when I saw him, I mean, first off, he he had no popular profile when he was alive. Like, yeah, his, yeah. his claim to fame oh, yeah. comes from the movie Hated. No, that's, not, that's not true. He, do he had an underground saw... profile. I mean, he had yes. a big underground profile. He was a cult thing. I mean, you know, I had I had a friend who came went, went out of town for the weekend and came home and his roommates were all excited. Dude, dude, we booked Gigi Allen to come play a show uh and he's gonna stay in our house and <laughs> so How my friend uh, it was uh, it made for some hilarious stories my friend put a padlock on his door uh and yeah. still came home to Gigi and an extremely repulsive uh, woman in bed in his room but in he his felt like room. he in his room through the padlock they, they busted the padlock off the, the the door to his bedroom but he felt like he got off light compared to his roommate who like uh, tried to take a bath one morning at five in the morning thinking he could slip in and quietly clean himself and then next thing he knows Gigi's sitting on the toilet kind of talking about how he wants to mentor him and etc and then the next thing he saw was you know, he hears a scream looks out the window and sees his roommate running across the grocery store parking lot that's behind their house and Gigi following behind him like Harpo Marx chasing a, a dancing girl, you know. <laughs> but while Gigi was in town, he played a, a, a party. Like the big show that they booked, Gigi showed up with some crackheads, took the entire gate and disappeared. No show whatsoever. <laughs> but the next night he played a party at Cindy's house and just did a straight rock show, and it was a really good kick-ass rock show. Uh, I was totally right, impressed. Right. And, did he have yeah, the yeah. crackheads uh, operating uh, as groupies or as uh, part of the crew or whatever? Roadies. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> I'm a roadies. You know, they drove him to the to the venue and, and helped him, uh, you know, uh, and then he absconded with the gate, and then they helped. I'm sure they helped him spend it. But back to the PMRC. I, I mean, yeah. with Gigi. And they also they they interviewed Guar Odorous Arungus yeah. from Guar, but they didn't talk Dave, about Dave Dave Brocky, rest in peace. 
Yeah, the, the late great. And Guar, one of the great live acts of, of that or any era. And all homemade, do-it-yourself, you know, art students from Richmond, Virginia, just doing some amazingly ridiculous stuff. But Guar never had a hit record. I don't think they were ever in, on a major label. So I can see why they didn't get featured uh, here other than talking. And they had White Zombie on this episode also, um, you know, which was fitting. But I want the thing about PMRC I wanted to get in was they basically just point out that PMRC was neg- a net negative for what they wanted to do, which, which their goal was to give parents more control of what kids listen to. And what they did was give kids an easier way to find these are the cool cassettes or CDs I want to buy and put this voice in my head. But nowadays with our surveillance state and our tech monopolies, those explicit labels that they put on everything, that has become a key part of this control apparatus. And even podcasts like ours, that thanks to your lack of self-control, I have to label ours explicit. <laughs> so Spotify and, and the other podcast monopolies, you know, actually some countries, they won't even let you listen to explicit podcasts. So I've never know, labeled they're... anything we've done as explicit. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. it's on YouTube, and and that, but when you're when you're doing the audio only and the podcast, Apple uh, in particular, so you get distracted by the the audio with the pretties. That's the thing. Exactly. Hey, you, exactly. you don't. You don't. You get by lack of self control. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, what part you're... of naked Negro attacking people in the crowd did you not understand? <laughs> Pulling the PA down onto the crowd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, and so so that that takes us to the 80s, which I think we can all agree the 80s were not a great era for shock rock. That the night the seven, I'd say the 60s, 70s, and 90s all smoked the 80s on the shock rock sweepstakes. Anybody want to argue? Yeah, because there was still, bar, I mean, I remember in the 80s, they were still referencing stuff from the 70s and yeah. you know it, it was it wasn't until i guess the uh it was it was still referencing the 70s and then the whole satan panic thing it dovetailed into that which again could not compare to the ozzy osbourne stories and alice cooper with the chicken like the big stories were even led zeppelin with the with the shark i mean yeah. there were no stories coming that i recalled at the time as uh, impressionable you t- uh, that yeah. could compare to the stuff that you were hearing from the 70s. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is because punk was the biggest, most shocking thing of this era and and kind of stole Metal's thunder on mm. that thing. And I think like what Eugene was talking about with the Venom-Black Flag collision, punk was just so much more intense. And that's where Thrash, you know, was an advance for Metal because suddenly you had slam dancing and moshing and you had, you had bands like Slayer and Metallica that were comfortable with that kind of thing. And that could hang with punk crowds. Whereas the older metal bands were taken aback, you know, and, and couldn't handle the spitting and the slamming and, and all that stuff. But this brings us to the nineties, the alternative grungy alt rock nineties and Marilyn Manson, who musically, uh, this category is basically made for Marilyn Manson. I mean, it's a lot like Kiss in that musically not that significant, but really had the shtick down and the act. Just the name alone was pretty genius. I mean, Marilyn Manson, you know, stick it together. And 
I don't know, man. It made me think of Elvis Costello. I just tried and tried and tried to like him, and I just couldn't do it. My my wife is actually a huge was had been one of the spooky kids, and he would stay with them when they when he would go to Poland, so they have a personal connection to the guy. And but I just I tried. I bought Antichrist Superstar, and I was like, what is this shit? I couldn't do it, you know. Well, that one, I went back and listened to all their albums, which I'd never done before. I was too old to be a Marilyn Manson fan. And it was interesting to me that their first couple of records were guitar rock. But mm, by yeah. the time of, of uh, the, what, what was the one you just said? The Antichrist, Antichrist. Superstar? Yeah. yeah. By that point, he'd hooked up with Trent Reznor and he mm. had a pretty industrial sound. And a similar <laughs> thing happened to White Zombie, where White Zombie actually starts out as a New York underground noise rock band playing. I think we talked about this before, playing with the Swans and Sonic Youth, and then Live they Skull. evolved it. Yeah, and Live Skull, and and they evolve into more of a metal band, and then get into. They don't get really industrial until like '96 or so, um, which my memory of White Zombie was basically that they were mostly industrial, you know, rock by the time they got popular, um, but. You know, and so same thing with Marilyn Manson. I assume that they were always like that, that they were always real nine inch nails or ministry influence. But you know, their earlier stuff uh was was pretty much just straight rock. Um and you know, I don't think there was anything musically genius ever going on there, but I do think that they he clearly created a brand and and a character and a persona that clicked with kids in the nineties. And, you know, going up against grunge and new metal and you know all the stuff hip-hop all the stuff and and just had that lane i mean there was like the Marilyn manson lane it was very much had it to himself and just absolutely capitalized and you know they talked about that and i thought it was interesting that daisy berkowitz dude that was his guitar player seemed to i thought had a more uh self-aware just understanding of what they were doing. Whereas it seemed more like Marilyn Manson was buying his own BS as far as just repeating his lines of, I'm trying to make people think with my crazy out, outrageous outrages, you know? And whereas Daisy Berkowitz was like, well, obviously we're baiting people, you know? And then, and then the big Columbine moment comes along and Marilyn blinks, you know, which I think is totally understandable. I mean, every celebrity essentially has this rise and fall arc almost every celebrity um you know if unless you're Bing crosby or irving Berlin or paul mccartney or something where you just sail through the clouds for 50 years but most celebrities have this rise and fall and cannot handle the the tension and the pressure and everything else and it seemed like to me marilyn manson was probably just due for it like even if columbine hadn't happened he probably was going to pull back and retreat because he'd been so famous yeah. and, and been so controversial and he'd courted the controversy and you know when he was suddenly headline, you know, like he had been kind of, he wasn't like Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder. He wasn't on the cover of time in Newsweek back when that meant something, you know, he was coming to towns and playing big shows and he was being protested by the local Christian Jesus freaks, but he was not top of mind. But then after mm -hmm. Columbine, he was top of mind and I don't think he could handle, obviously he couldn't handle it and he pulled back. And I don't even want to get into all the Me Too allegations and stuff that's come yeah. out in, in more recent eras, uh, you know, but like Trent Reznor and him had a vicious falling out and Reznor has yeah. been shit talking him for decades. Um, yeah. So, you know, his, his critical 
he had a lot more critical respect in the nineties and the two thousands when they made this than he does now. If if he, if he had been a student of our, of if the shoes fit, I would have advised him to follow his namesake and, and not blink at Columbine and said, you know, uh, whose fault is it that your kids have fallen into my hands? All right. Yeah. I'm a product of your society. I mean, he could have just reprised any number of Charles Manson parole hearings and, and, you know, uh, gone to town with it, but um, you know, he clearly blinked. And I, I, th- I think that's it's the classic Mick Jagger at Altamont thing, you know. I mean, Mick Jagger was into a big thing with paint pentagrams on his chest and doing sympathy for the devil, and, and at a time when that really freaked people out. And then he sees the Hell's Angels killing somebody right in front of him, and oh, it's just an act, guys. I'm just an entertainer, you know. Like, <laughs> Who's the biggest person that comes to mind that did not blink? I'm talking in terms of commercial success who had a blinking opportunity did not. I'm not talking about people who were not commercially like up there. Is there a anyone that comes to mind? Yeah. That did not blink. I mean, they all, they all blink. I can't, they all blink. Them. I mean, even I John Lennon maybe, apologized yeah. for the, we're bigger than Jesus thing. You know, I mean, Jim Morrison, your famous never... one though, Eugene, I what? think the biggest one, the biggest one, obviously is not, you know, Jim Morrison, but Vince Neil and, uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which was for those who, after he killed the fucking dude from Henry Rocks, he says, and he asked him about it. He's like, ah, his band wasn't really going anywhere anyway. <sighs> Man, I think that's <sighs> the biggest, right? That has to be. Yeah, that's got to be. I can't think of one more disgusting than that one. Yeah, that was that was some appalling cluelessness. But there wasn't like a big, you know, firestorm of anger over that. I mean, he was a much bigger celebrity in the States than, than Razzle was. And, you know, and the thing is when we went back, when we did the, the glam listening, you know, the glam episode, and I went back and I listened to that. Hanoi rocks is by far the best glam rock band yeah. of that era by miles and miles and miles. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about four or five really, really good albums. Which makes it much more vicious. That, that exactly. what said. Yes. yes. <clears throat> I mean, I can't think of anybody that, that, you know, after the Who had their disaster show in Cincinnati where 11 people got killed, they were totally contrite and apologetic. Yeah. I, I can't, you know, Great White, of course, several of them didn't survive that fire. So I can't think of anybody who, you know, went through anything comparable. But we still got to cover Slipknot and Ramstein. So let's let's move along. So then, you know, they talk about the rise and fall of Marilyn Manson. Then they bring up Slipknot. And to me, Slipknot easily could have fit into the new metal category. Uh-huh. Um to to me, listening to Slipknot's albums, they're like three parts new metal, one part death metal. That's kind of how I saw the recipe. Although they were doing some interesting things. Like I heard things like beats that were referencing what was going on in the English dance scene in the 90s, like jungle and drum and bass kind of stuff. I heard that and I was like, whoa, that's, you know, not something I expected. And, and most of those new metal bands stayed away from the death metal growling and, and all that, whereas Slipknot will do whole songs in that style. And um, they definitely shocked and put on a scary show. Did you guys ever see Slipknot live or? No, I never did. I hated them before this show and actually ended up with a huge amount of respect and interest that I didn't have before. I just love the guy's interview. I think yep. he's, I'm I'm a big authenticity guy, and it just seemed to me to be really straight up authentic. So, 
I, I could forgive the mask and the music that didn't interest me very much, but to know that this guy was like, I go out there every night wanting to die. I'm like, all right. See, I had the total opposite effect. I was like, you know, he, I, I gave him points for keeping up the act backstage, but I, I still felt like it was just, the difference between his shtick and insane clown posse shtick, I do not see a great difference in, you know, like, well, that's, that's a mistake. See, I juggalos a way of life. I, I don't <laughs> doubt. Are a fascinating, uh, uh, socio-cultural phenomenon, but I've seen both of those groups live and I, I Slipknot is way, way, way more intense live than insane clown posse. But I don't, the clown masking just kills me. I cannot take it seriously. You know, uh, I don't know the, 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 when the guy when the guy says we're war, that's what we are, and I'm like, no, you're not war. <laughs> like you're a fucking rock band that puts on masks and scares kids. You're not war. I mean, you know, but that's um, also I mean, that brings up you know, I mean, that's how you're laying the groundwork for how hip hop ended up lapping them in terms of you know the stakes and it's it's gotten bad enough with hip hop where who who somebody recently came out and said. Like some like a respected community, uh, Master P maybe came out, um, or somebody like Master P, and, and the headline was Master P explains why all these young rappers are getting shot dead. Fundamentally, was the headline, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But it's it's risen to the occasion where people are like, whoa! In the last since Pop Smoke, we got what 12, 15 guys, bona fide, you know, hit records, guys with millions of dollars, just getting popped again and again and that it's hard to you know dragons and demons and you know screaming about how wars on stage when you know you got cats who are getting shot to death on stage right i mean you could say pantera was, well but that was dimebag Darrell got shot to death on stage so yeah, yeah. you know I, I mean that was pretty intense but yeah there's nothing coming out of metal that compares to hip-hop i mean with hip-hop this latest generation they're they're not even making the twenty seven club. I mean, it's like the the eighteen and a half club or the twenty one club. I mean, it's just yeah. horrific. And 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 some of these guys are just complete criminal knuckleheads too. I mean, you got you know not any big superstars that I can think of, but multiple people have had you know YouTube singles or whatever that were just stone murderers, like a guy who murdered his own crew in some kind of elaborate frame thing. But back to the metal thing. I mean. You know they cover Slipknot. Gave up. I mean, you guys, you guys bought bought it, so pretty good presentation. A buddy has, has been li living off of Slipknot for years by telling women that he's the bass player for Slipknot, and it's actually going to know working. right. <laughs> Slipknot <You know>. knob. <laughs> well, uh, one thing I did want to point out though that when they talk about clown huffing, keeping a, a dead crow in a plastic bag and then huffing the fumes before, he totally stole that from a guy named Death who was in the Norwegian black metal band Mayhem. And and Death blew his brains out and then uh, uh, he kept the real. The, of leader, the leader of Mayhem, who was his roommate, then came in and took pictures of the corpse that he later right. used for an album oh, cover yep. and, and made yeah. some jewelry out of parts of his skull yep. and then called the police. And everything so and then of course those guys that guy later gets murdered by the bass player of mayhem who's also the guy from burzum so norwegian black metal keeps it kind of real on a, a comparable <laughs> to hip-hop level but uh, yeah slipknot didn't and then they bring in ramstein at the end um 
which I I've, I don't know. I felt like it was kind of tacked on, but it was appropriate enough. They were big and and to Ramstein. Like, yeah, the <laughs> classic, you know, over the top schlocky show with the dildo and the spewing and 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 everything. Um, I I I I, I liked them more than I liked them. If that makes sense, like I like the idea, like the idea. than the actual music. Yeah, so. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I like I view them as artists. I think that they're doing some kind of agit prop thing. I don't really mm. view them as serious musicians. So. Yeah, it's it's fun stuff, but I didn't hear anything to me that was new. Like everything I was hearing them do was something that Leibach or Ministry had done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 20 years earlier you know um although there was a youtube clip where they took a video of the derlevanger battalion attacking a belarusian village and had a ramstein soundtrack to it instead of the original horse weissel you know song yeah. lied or whatever and, and they took it off youtube because it was too too good to nazi propaganda but it, it was excellent nazi yeah. propaganda I have to it say, had your you hand know. lifting up huh <laughs> not mine I'm I'm anti I'm anti all the way, baby. Had my fist you know, coming a, up. A friend of a friend of mine is the one who signed them uh, to the German record label, and a, an exciting footnote is he was so flying so high after that, right? And then he signs a guy named Biscuit Boy, who they put two or three million dollars into his video, and uh, I go, how did it do? He goes, well, it didn't do that good. I go, how many records did you sell? He goes. Well, you know, 130. I go, oh, 130,000 is not that much. He goes, 130. He said, literally, as he was packing his bags to leave the record label, because they were like, you're not. <laughs> How do you spend $3 million? It really made me want to track down Biscuit Boy to see what it was like, and I still never have done this. <laughs> well, might have to track it down. That That is bad A&R right there to spend $3 million. You, you let the band have a hit, then you spend the $3 million on the video. Like, yeah. you don't you don't, you yeah, don't fly that. Well, he he so, was hot from he was hot from Ramstein, and then you know that they, they give him anything at that point. But well, uh, you know, he's hot from Ramstein. Got it bad, <laughs> so bad. He's hot from Ramstein. So, um, <laughs> final thoughts on Shock Rock. Did this does Shock Rock is Shock Rock even a category, or is this just a way to shoehorn these groups that are significant in there? Like, I feel like you really could have put Alice Cooper and Kiss into the. 70s yeah. american metal episode and yeah. um you know slipknot could have gone in the new metal Mar- i think yeah. they should have had an industrial metal episode and you could have put marilyn manson and white zombie yeah. in there you know my thought, um, when, and, thought watching it is like ah, they're trying to make a tv show i got you that's yeah, it's, it's, yeah you know and and the stuff it it is significant it is a big part of metal but and so you know anyway that's it for this episode we'll be back next time to talk power metal which is going to be a total learning curve because these are like to me power metal is scorpions judas priest except that kind of mm. you know post rainbow 70s and early 80s metal that is not yet speed metal so like anything mm. from judas priest up through anvil i would consider power metal but apparently there's a whole new generation of european power metal bands and sam dunn is going to learn about it and try to share it and we'll talk about that next time walking around Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, 
Nate, Eugene, and Alexi return to discuss power metal. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.